Welcome to They Came From Outer Space. This is the pilot episode of a radio program where we talk to filmmakers and buffs about their favorite sci-fi film and how it relates to their own work and today's wild, wacky world. I'm filmmaker Cameron Kitt, also known here on WIR as DJ Lilas. Uh, I have a program called Party Planet from 7 to 9 p.m. Um, but I'm here today with Jeff Roll. He's the former VP of the James River Film Society for five years, and we're here to discuss the day the Earth stood still. See, a large object traveling at supersonic speed is headed over the North Atlantic toward the east coast of the United States. Jeff, why did you choose this as your favorite sci-fi film, or why did you want to pick this film to talk about today? Well, I don't know if it's my favorite sci-fi film. I think it's an important sci-fi film. Um, first of all, I think it's the first uh, feature film that used allegory. It was more marketed towards adults than children. Previously, like specifically in the uh, serials of the 1930s and 40s, like the Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers, was marketed towards children and family entertainment. But uh, this film came along and it uses allegory to mirror what was going on um, not just politically, but also uh, socially in the environment of the 1950s. And uh, we're um, basically, it came in right after uh, post-war. Um, we were harnessing atomic power mm -hmm. uh, for destructive purposes. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the alien in the film, Klaatu mm -hmm. is his name, uh, played by... Um, Michael Ready. Michael Reedy, uh, he um, was brought to planet Earth because eventually we would harness atomic power to travel outer space, which yeah, you know, in his we face eventually says, did. Yeah. I think it would use an advanced form of atomic power to travel. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. So that's that's kind of that's a great way to introduce it. It's a thinker, and it does what I think science fiction does so well, which is allow us to talk about the present day in a way that is more accessible to people. I think almost all science fiction is discussing human uh, issues, and and I think to talk about atomic power and essentially uh, yeah, be a thought piece for it was really powerful because it was only a few years after we had dropped the bomb. I mean, this is 1951. Yeah. So if you haven't seen The Day the Earth Stood Still, it came out in 1951. So um, I'm not really going to be sorry about making spoilers happen here because I think it will all be spoiled. But, you know, today's show will definitely have some. The focus of the discussion, however, is more about the craft than just the content. So don't get mad at me. Um, but <laughs> to me, studies show that a little bit of light spoilage can actually increase the enjoyment factor. However, if you'd really would rather watch the movie before listening, go ahead and stop. And uh, you can find this program on Mixcloud or on WRIR.org's archive player. Um, so the original release, as I said, was 1951, directed by Robert Wise, who describes himself as a, uh, well, I don't know, Robert Wise describes himself as a pacifist. But Klaatu, as you just described, is the pacifist alien who lands in the middle of Washington, D.C., it's based on a short story by Harry Bates called Farewell to the Master and was made during the early height to the Cold War, I would say kind of the beginning while yes. everything was ramping up. Um, and the tension was was extremely high. Yeah. I mean, just think, um, we were doing atomic tests all over the globe, uh, both us and Russia, and an atomic blast would be visible from outer space. So if a higher intelligence was just going past Earth, they would kind of notice that go off. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, apparently, you know, Klaatu's civilization noticed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, there's a phrase in the in the script or in the script in the film where it says the universe is becoming increasingly small as intelligences of other planets are becoming bound, and so they see themselves as the sort of interplanetary agency to keep. I love this though because he looks down on us like we're like we're dumb little kids who are about to to hit it big and yeah. the whole point of the film is you can't do that <laughs> like you're not allowed to leave the earth yet um it was it makes me think there's a i don't know if you know the book childhood's end by arthur c Clarke. it oh, came out very much so, two yeah. years after so i think it was highly influenced or that book was highly influenced by this because the impact of stopping all of the technology this idea of mm-hmm. instantaneous power from beyond was really powerful to people right that yeah we're just play toys or <laughs> play things to a larger power but talk let's talk about that allegory so what you just mentioned the u.s and russia we both had tremendous amounts of power right now i think we have enough nuclear power to blow up the earth three or four times over oh yeah completely (laughs) have been for decades (laughs) so what was the i guess what's the impact of this allegory and and in terms of as a piece of art what is it saying um well first of all um plateau sees himself and his very large robot called Gort, <laughs> Gort, uh, as as kind of the the policeman, and he saw the human race getting out of hand, uh, using this power as a destructive force instead of a positive force, and uh, of course when he introduces himself to a big crowd of government officials and of course the military are there. What's the first thing they do? They fire upon him. Yep, they shoot yeah. him right away. That's right. And what does he do? He just gets up and, you know, continues on uh, because his uh, uh, ability to heal is uh, he has like a little container of ointment that he rubs on the bullet wound and it just makes it go away. Yeah, very Star Trek. <laughs> yeah. Just wave a little something over you and you're much better. Yeah, and he's 75 or something, but it, Michael Rennie himself was in his you know, late 30s or early 40s. Yeah. yeah. So they were, you know, there's a great scene with the doctor saying, I want to give up on the study of medicine. He made me feel like a child. Uh. Like, of course. <laughs> I love the the device that he was carrying that they shot that broke. He said, yeah. with this, your president could have studied other worlds it was a gift yeah but it's also let's just talk about um so Klaatu comes to DC why DC he's like why can't he asked to go to the UN why does he land in DC if his whole job is to stop the entire world is I think it's just a little presumptuous on the part of the American filmmakers right it takes, we're the center of the universe. <laughs> I, I take it. It takes us back to that old term. Take take me to your leader. That type of a thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, landing in D.C. was uh, was retooled in the remake uh, in 2008. A decade ago, there was a mm-hmm. remake of the Day to the Earth that Stood Still, starring uh, Keanu Reeves as Klaatu. Uh, they really retooled it uh, and amped it up and put in a hundred million dollars worth of CGI. <laughs> Um, and kind of lost track of the original allegory of, of the of the original picture, which was sad to me. Um, that part of my homework of preparing for this is I I sat down and watched the remake too. Uh huh. We'll, we'll get it. We'll definitely get into the remake and talk about. All right. Well, we can, we can just talk about it now. But for me, the idea is this movie is remains powerful because it was one of the first times we're discussing the idea. Of we 
of recognizing that human beings are so fallible and neither one of the, of the sides is right, that we would need someone from above who is more intelligent, right? This more intelligent yeah. pacifist species mm. to come and kind of break up the fight by saying... I came here to give you these facts. But if you threaten to extend your violence, this earth of yours will be reduced to a burned out cinder. Um, this is simply not allowed, right? Like the idea is, I've, I think one of the US presidents even said it would require some outside force to unify us, right? That if, yeah. if we were being attacked, then world peace would be imminent. But I really love the idea of the, the higher intelligence aliens being the pacifists, right? Michael Rennie does such a good job of um, kind of being straight faced and and kind of looking at the human condition, you can almost feel him judging us, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Rennie had, had a, a very statuesque uh, performance here, and uh, he was a very uh, popular uh, film and television actor. He went on and do a version of uh, uh, Les Mis a year later with Deborah Padgett. And uh, later starred as a Batman villain, uh, the Sandman, on the old Adam West TV series of the well, 60s. He's got these very prominent high cheekbones and very prominent chin. He has the, I don't know, I don't, you, wouldn't, you don't want to say alien face, but when Robert Wise was talking about casting, he was essentially an unknown actor by the time that movie yeah. was cast. So they were looking at... Uh, oh gosh, who were they looking at? He said, I got a call from Daryl Zanuck who was running the studio and he said, I just signed this talented young actor, you should consider him. And Robert Wise said, instead of having an actor who had done other films who people had seen before, we had this brand new fresh faced actor do the film and I actually think the film had more credibility with Michael in it than it would have with Claude Rains. Um, what is, why is that important? Is it that he should be unknown because he's the alien and if we had recognized him, it wouldn't have made as much of an impact? Yeah, I, I think that's what Wise is is uh, is stating. Uh, uh, a new face uh, would be, and uh, I guess a new face to the industry would be somewhat of an alien face. So um, he also had the appearance where he could just blend in, which he uh, does later in the movie. He just blends in as Mr. Carpenter mm -hmm. uh, and rents a room. Um, all right, so he rents a room nearby. Me personally, I think the beginning and the end of the film are fantastic, but I personally found the middle with the fun and games with Bobby, the little fresh-faced kid, to be pretty boring, actually, and forgettable. I understand the point of building, but I think they waste. I think they spent way too much time with him connecting to the human condition and the and the like subtle relationship interest in well, Bobby's I, mother. And I think I, I uh, Bobby, the character, was kind of because uh, kind of put there to make uh Klaatu seem very friendly true you know? he's like and literally a, a puppy as yeah. a, hi mr carpenter yeah. oh gee we're gonna go play with some toy trains he's like so pure this child has like no he's no he's so innocent and has no evil in him so he does mirror Klaatu I think but I found that it was like so quintessentially 1951 to me like Bobby yeah. literally his entire look and outfit are so very um leave it to beaver yeah um and, and that kind of makes a, a point but billy gray the the actor that played bobby was uh probably more famous later on in the 50s and the early 60s uh he played Bl bud on the uh popular sitcom father knows best uh -huh. and that's probably what he's known for okay <clears throat> but uh that that was an early film he did was worth was Earth stood still, and I think that's why his character was there to kind of connect with, with Mr. Carpenter, right. and kind of put forth that he was a gentle person, right? That he would, 
develop a friendship with a, with with a small boy. It's true. I mean, you do find yourself rooting for him. The character development of Klaatu is really well done when he sneaks into the scientist's house and finishes his his uh, equation that he couldn't get right. So you you empathize with him and you support him through that. I think you're right. I think it was necessary. I just find the the buildup was a little bit slow. But in terms of talking about like what the point was, what the meaning is, with science fiction, I think there's a lot of ways you can go wrong. And I think part of it is if there's no story or meaning, you're just trying to show, I don't know, aliens in space. If there's nothing, if there's nothing in terms of content that you're trying to deliver, then it tends to fall flat, which I think is probably why you found yeah. the remake so boring. So it's, it's all, you know, it's, it's kind of done in metaphor because I mean, Clateau is judging us for being a, for higher intelligent alien being, but you could also look at that as God judging us too. Mm -hmm. um, oh, I didn't even think yeah, about that. Wow, yeah. that's true. You can also uh, look at uh, another film that took place a, a few years later, the Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Mm -hmm. That was an allegory about McCarthyism at the mm -hmm. time, the witch hunt for communism in in America. That was mm -hmm. going strong, and that you know is more relevant today because I think that's you know, going on today. Oh, certainly well. happening today. So yeah, in terms <clears throat> of relevance, I think that that's the value of this kind of art is that it helps people connect the really, the understanding of um, when you're positioning human beings in relation to the rest of the universe, our squabbles seem mm, minuscule or idiotic. But yeah. how, do you, how do you package meaning or story in your own work? Have you ever utilized allegory in any of your own films or stories? Hmm. Um, my, my own film making, it, it comes from, uh, I guess, exercising demons, <laughs> <laughs> like what I'm going through in life right now. Um, so I don't know if I'm, uh, I do have a project that's, um, kind of a dystopian future project that has a little bit of allegory going on in there, like our disconnection from each other. Uh, via technology, that mm -hmm. type of a thing, and how it would eventually isolate all of us into just um, uncorrectable loneliness. All of us would be. We're isolated. all very worried about that, aren't yeah. we? I mean, I I think it's it's a valid fear because we it, we. But the truth is, human beings crave connection so much that that's why we're so addicted to technology, right? Yeah. It's, it's such it's an easy form of connection. But, it, but it's not really a it's connection. It's not a real connection, exactly, which is why there's such high rates of depression now is that people are feeling more disconnected than ever. So it's Could be, yeah. really important that we talk about this. I also think that's why shows like Black Mirror are so important is because <laughs> I see you wearing, <laughs> wearing a Black Mirror shirt is because it makes it, it's important to think about the negative consequences uh, before we move something blindly. So now that that's in our collective conscious, people are more likely to think twice. Yeah. Um, so yet, what what about the two thousand eight remake um, was wrong? <laughs> what was wrong with it? Um, well, I think uh, they tried to expand on it a little bit. Of um, I think uh, first of all, they had a great cast. I think that mm -hmm. uh, Keanu Reeves is is a decent actor, and uh, he could have pulled off. What? The role, yeah, he he could have pulled off the role if the people writing the film would have put the 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 material for him to work with. So, um, you know, if you look at Rotten Tomatoes, mm -hmm. you'll see the original film 
rated somewhere in the 94%. Right. And the remake, I think, is down in like 27%. Yeah. <laughs> it's only it's only got five out of 10 on IMDb, and it's something like 7.8. I try, I've, just an aside, I have tried so hard to divorce myself from the Rotten Tomatoes rating process, but I, I find that it is such a huge deciding factor in whether or not I'm going to go see a movie. It's a shortcut, yeah. I know, and I realize there are a lot of films that I deeply adore that have under 50% on Rotten Tomatoes from either the critics or the audience. It, it, yeah, it's a shortcut, but the truth is the populace is not always right. Yeah, plus I think I have... Um... Kathy Bates was in it. Yeah, Kathy Bates was in it. And Jaden Jaden Smith, wow. Yeah, okay. Jennifer Connelly was the female lead. So, uh, yeah. What they did, they, they modernized it. <laughs> Modernize it. They 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 took the female lead and the uh, the researcher, the astrophysicist, merged it into one person. So okay. um, th- they modernize it in a way. But, um, you know, I don't know what you think about spoilers, but Clatou's uh, judgment towards the human race was a whole lot harsher in the remake than it was in the original. Mm-hmm. So basically he was. Uh, I guess arcing up, arcing up the species of planet Earth mm-hmm. because he was going to wipe out the human race and then reset the planet Earth with just the original species and not not humans being on it because of interesting. Yes, spoiler alert, fam. Yeah. Yeah, that is. But still very interesting that we think we think about that a lot. You know, we talk about the earth and global warming. The truth is earth will be fine no matter what happens. It's us as a species who are in peril. You can go back to Planet of the Apes, which was based on uh, a French science fiction novel that the screenplay was written by Rod Serling, probably the prince of allegory, allegorical science fiction with the Twilight Zone. Um well, let's 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 take a moment. Actually, I want to talk a little bit about the impact it had on science fiction. But first, I want to remind everyone that you are tuned in to WRIRLP ninety-seven point three FM at Richmond Indie Radio. I'm Cameron Kitt, a local filmmaker, and you are listening to the program called "They Came from Outer Space." It's a science fiction review and filmmaking show. I'm here with Jeff Roll, and we are talking about the day the Earth stood still from nineteen fifty-one. So, okay, 1951 was not the first time a science fiction film had been made, uh, and it was, I'd say, some of the most important, I guess, arguments about when science fiction really started. Most people would say H.G. Wells, late 1800s, but there's a lot of influences before that. Yeah, I mean, uh, Edgar Allan Poe wrote in he science sure fiction. He sure did. Yeah. I, have a whole, I have a whole book of it. Um, what was the impact that this film had on other films afterwards I, I definitely think of this as a long twilight zone episode it I'm sure absolutely was impactful on rob yeah on roger sterling what else um well i think that um there was a great deal of of technology put into the special effects it looks dated mm-hmm. these days I thought the effects looked pretty good, yeah. actually. <laughs> I mean, if if you think of this film almost being what 60, 65 years old, um, I you know the the effects are are astounding for something of that era. When the, when it lands, I I kept watching, trying to look for issues. When the actual spaceship lands on the yeah. mall, looked pretty great. Uh-huh. I was impressed. Yeah. Well, uh, basically, uh, back then and. 
people can't do it these days because that we're spoiled by CGI, but you had to watch science fiction and fantasy with your imagination turned on. Mm. You had to help it in your head a little bit. And uh, basically, you know, they did what they could back then. And uh, I thought that they pulled off some really wonderful visual effects with yeah. with the day the earth stood still in 1951. Uh, how um, um, Gort, the uh, eight foot tall robot, vaporized the tanks mm-hmm. that, and the I machine guns. They they disappeared from their hands, vaporized and glowing. using a laser that comes out. He has this, he has this um, visor that slowly recedes, and you just see a large black line across where the eyes would be and I, yeah I thought that that was powerful because that's sort of the unspoken power that he brings. Klaatu says you know I'm not going to do anything but if something happens to me I can't speak for Gort. Gort's going to destroy the whole world <laughs> which I love like you have the it, that's the big stick right he speaks softly and then he carries Gort around with him or at least Gort stands there. The effects I thought were fabulous the classic you know flying saucer shape yeah. And then the the it, it's it's kind of the foundation. Of course, the first time we ever saw a robot in film was on Metropolis, and right. Fritz Lang just used uh, an actress and put some kind of plating on top of her. And I think that kind of set the precedent for I don't want to say laziness, but how we see robots and aliens. And I was listening to a Carl Sagan book recently, and he was just lamenting how uncreative we are when we think about the description and the, the the way that we personify aliens. For this film, it wouldn't have made sense for him to be anything but humanoid, right? Because yeah. he has to blend in with humanity. But the truth is, we have. I, I couldn't stop thinking about that. It's like, there's a ship landing, and who walks out? A human being, yeah. <laughs> right? It's always interesting to me. That's that's they, they put in a sequence into the remake to kind of explain that. Oh, they did, yes. Yeah. Um, where it shows him transforming? Uh, well... Yeah, I mean, they, they did kind of a cocoon type of a thing uh, because uh, the the fir- very first scene of the remake uh, takes place in 1928, and Keanu Reeves' character uh, is not Klaatu. He's a human being. He's camping on a mountaintop and you know, extremely harsh environment. It could be Mount Everest or whatever, and all of a sudden this strange obelisk appears in front of him. He approaches it. And he tries to touch it, and it takes a sample out of his hand. Oh, I like that. Yeah. All right. So the okay, then at least they're addressing that, right? Yeah. I appreciate that. The, the remake. <laughs> by the time that the remake came out, they they were factoring in more of the, I guess, astrobiology, her understanding of the yeah. differences in potential human or potentials for for life. Um, on top of the effects, which I mean, I have to say, my my understanding of how they showed that was very limited. I assume you know you're recording the actual let's say we're just talking about the actual spaceship landing they record that and they play it and layer the two pieces of tape over one another and it was it was like a stop motion animation very slow with the shadow moving over top yeah how they do lasers uh, how they showed that i have no idea yeah <laughs> i mean the things um first of all when you go back and look at retro science fiction you have the bullet shaped vessel and then you have the saucer the flying saucer uh. there were only one or the other but <laughs> you never saw anything you know elaborate like star wars or, or star right. trek or anything like that it was the flying saucer or the bullet shaped vessel and that and that was it which is really interesting because the idea of the flying saucer came from what people who saw ufos perceived also as and pilots perceived were just looking at satellites that were whizzing past them so most of the time the the it was one story i can't remember if it was from the 20s or 30s 
that somebody used the phrase saucer and that was it that was how, how we perceived alien vessels from then on but it was actually just a person who you know saw a, an actual ufo that was i think a weather vessel or something like that yeah saucer or bullet but on top of the effects what was impressive to me watching it again is somebody as having lived in dc for a little while how much of dc they were able to take over for the shooting of this film and how interesting how challenging that would be today there's so many like they're all over the mall they're all over you know the east side of dc these are like areas that today would be incredibly hard yeah. to film a large militaristic film in i mean they have the military all over the place you're seeing all these different monuments um but i have a quote here that was about kind of message but also about the usage of space that robert wise said um when he was asked was there anything really technically challenging about doing this movie and he said the one thing that was really interesting is if you want something from the war department in washington let's say equipment they have to approve the script well we sent it to them and they turned us down <laughs> We wanted some tanks and then some Jeeps and some uniforms, things like that. They said no. So Fox had this very smart lobbyist in Washington at the time. He got a brilliant idea. He went over to Virginia and got the National Guard, and they didn't have any problem with the script. So all the equipment and everything that we had, tanks came from the National Guard of Virginia, not the War Department. They didn't approve of our message of peace, I guess. Yeah. Which I think is very interesting. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, basically the... Um the scene there that that takes place with the military approaching the uh, Clateau's vessel, um, it was probably the scene that you remember from this film with Gort, you know, vaporizing the uh, the tanks and stuff. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I guess, what you would refer to as high science fiction action of that era. Oh, yeah. <laughs> very memorable, very well shot and planned with this ring of people. But speaking of, you know, just like asking for, looking for um, locations and getting props, what, is some, what are some challenges you've had yourself in, in trying to coordinate with something that was, say, location-specific or getting props from people? <laughs> um, shooting, well, there's two ways to shoot uh, when you're an independent filmmaker with very little money. Uh, you can go through the right channels and get approval to shoot on locations, which I have done. And then there's guerrilla filmmaking, which I've also done. Mm -hmm. The Werner Herzog style. Yeah, basically. Bolt cutters. You just go in, <laughs> shoot it quick, and get out before yep. anybody notices. Yeah. I, I was uh, working on a film on the Metro recently, and there were, I was reading up on ways to get around doing... Um, Getting permits, because essentially there's no permitting allowed, so I hope nobody's listening to this. Um, <laughs> but when I found one filmmaker, the story was when they were shooting on both the New York subway, the Paris subway, and a couple other for a film. They just created fake MTA badges and used a logo and created a fake, like as if they were being supported by that location and then had a little letter of recognition that if anyone came up and talked, it would flash. So I, I thought that was very creative. Um, Level of gorilla. Have you ever had? Have you ever like had a really sticky situation with the gorilla filmmaking style? Have you ever been chased off a property? Um, not really. We um one one of my films we shot kind of late. We went to Warren in the morning and we were using a city alleyway and I, there were people. They were neighbors that came out and just kind of peeked at what we were doing, and you know. We never had cops called on us or anything, but uh, I think we were able to wrap and get out of there before anything serious happened. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, still, I just love that the War Department didn't like that story piece. They were <laughs> not about to send over the tanks and support them. 
Um, yeah, because Gort does kind of carelessly kill a few people. He vaporizes at the end a few of the guards because um, he's mad. Yeah. <laughs> before yeah. before our heroine is able to spoiler alert help. Yeah, much help more, save them. <laughs> but, just just a note about the remake. Much more killing in the remake. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Our our thirst for blood has only grown. Yeah. I, I mean, do you think about the level of violence that is expected and and is acceptable for say a TV 14 film? It's incredible versus the 50s. What it was considered oh, yeah. violence back then. So, uh, I mean, that's a whole other subject. Yeah, the original uh, Earth Stood Still has a G rating. And, yeah. uh, gosh, I, I don't think it had an R rating, but it at least had a PG-13 rating, the, the remake. I'd have to look at that. Yeah. But our, our obsession with violence, it, it, at this point, I mean, I've seen movies with film, you know, th- just certain Tarantino yeah. films where the level is so shocking. And now I think we're always trying to let one up each other, but in, let's also talk about effects. What have you ever done effects in your own films? What would you count? As a, yeah. I mean, we've, um, I have a, uh, a creative partner. His name's Dustin Glasgow. He's worked with me for over a decade now. And he is the one that applies effects because I've, I've done stuff, that has been um, trickery, you know, in-camera trickery, and we've also applied, you know, a light level of CGI to some of my short films. Uh, but I've never wanted to overdo it and, like, shoot green screen. I mean, we shot green screen one time to make uh, someone disappear, but that was it. I love green screen, though. I definitely think we are way too addicted to CGI. Just watching right. Avengers, I could. There's so much of it that it almost upsets me. So that we're we're too addicted to it, and we're, it's too Seven, much of a crutch. Seventy-five percent of what you're seeing in a movie like Avengers: Affinity War is is all computer generated. Yeah, it's yeah. just the live action actors that are real. But to me, it's any of those in-camera or live effects, they last so much longer. They look so much better. So what were some of those little bits of trickery? Like, give, give the people an idea of, of what that would be like. Like, how would you show trickery in the camera? Um, well, let's see. Um, I shot a film called Doppelganger a number of years ago in which uh, we had to duplicate an actor and make them be two people at once. And we would have to use a stand-in and remove the stand-in in um, in post and then put the duplicate of the actor in like hmm. that. And when what the, the actor interacts with herself, she'd be actually interacting with a stand-in. Uh, I was going to ask, why would you need a stand-in, right? For, so you're talking about like what, what they used with Freaky Friday, or not Freaky Friday, what was the other film with Lindsay Lohan that was a remake of? With the, with the two twins, where there's twins reacting to each other. Oh, yeah. I, I know what you're talking about. One of those those old Disney pictures. It was a Disney picture, but yeah, I guess that's how they do it, right? To make it seem natural for you to be yeah. reacting to nothing. Yeah. I mean, it's easily done these days, but they use sp- uh, split screen back in the day. Um, parent Trap. Yeah, Parent Trap. Yeah, that's the one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, split screen was heavily used uh, in... Uh, in television and uh, in film for decades up until CGI where they could actually complicate things and have an actor walk in front of himself on screen. And that was done 
with CGI. You couldn't do that in split screen. You always had to keep them separate. Mm-hmm. Unless you were shooting from the back side of them, then you'd have like maybe the actor's stunt double um, as the back of the head and then the front would be the actual right. actor. Yeah. Right, I've seen that happen before. Yeah, it, it's really, really heavily used uh, in stuff like pre-1995. Um, where you, you see um, over-the-shoulder shots uh, done with, with either stunt doubles or stand-ins. Um, and split screen was done heavily on up through like the early 1990s. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I guessed um, like when uh, they used to refer to it as Forrest Gump technology, where you put a modern actor into vintage footage uh, because they, they did that heavily in Forrest Gump. Uh, they put, you know, Tom Hanks into a scene with President Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when, when they do, um, when they multiple, multiply actors and do it, they're, they're doing pretty much the same thing. Right. Well, let's talk about, let's talk about style. <clears throat> wow. Let's talk about style then with uh, Robert Wise himself, who went on to direct, if you don't know Robert Wise, uh, many other films, including Sound of Music. <laughs> Sound of Music, West Side Story. Uh, he returned to science fiction in the early 70s with The Andromeda Strain, which is which one is of the... Fabulous yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Uh, and then wrapped the 70s with uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture. The first of uh, first movie of that franchise in 1979, and he went into semi-retirement after that. Which is interesting. I I need to add to my list the Andromeda Strain, but you know between him, his uh, cinematographer was Leo Tover, who also was the cinematographer for Dead Reckoning. Not he had no, no one else had done sci-fi. What are some of the I would say recognizable stylistic elements of a Robert Wise film that stand out? Because when you think about this film and Sound of Music, you, that's quite a range. But what are some things you notice? Um, I would say uh, he worked with some of the best cinema- cinematographers. Mm-hmm. And I think he he shoots in a different style with what, like, basically Sound of Music and West Side Story are shot in a certain way. Right. But uh, he would shoot, I, I find, the Andromeda strain as... Uh, artistic departure for him. Oh man! Because I I often refer to that time period that the Andromeda Strain came out, uh, the time period of science fiction after two thousand one and before Star Wars is the most interesting time in science fiction. They were really doing some really groundbreaking stuff. Why do you say that? Um, well, that's when a lot of allegorical stuff was was being used. A lot of dystopian of um, visions were being uh, projected at that time. Um, You could look at uh, some of the more abstract writers of the time period, like Harlan Ellison. Uh, A film called The Boy and His Dog came out during that time period. What a weird Uh, film. Yeah. Uh, Logan's Run came out uh, during that time period. Uh, There were so many uh, that were... uh, uh, Slaughterhouse Five came out. Uh, oh yeah, that was you know it was just a very experimental time in science fiction, and I think uh, what was feeding it was the '60s counterculture. Uh, they were really thinking abstractly, and really pushing a lot of art through the genre. And I mean, in that in that decade you're talking about, so starting with 2001, which Kubrick, like to the from I remember 
as a kid when I learned that that film came out before anyone had ever been in space and that it shook me so much that because I watched that movie I think I don't know when I was 12 or 13 and just remember being like really shook up for a while because it messed me up but it's good like really like walking around like feeling it but the the ability to I guess represent what our ideas of space were before we actually had a lot more I guess visuals of the but actual landing. before we had been to the moon before we, we had, had been actually to the moon with been in space with John Glenn and some of the Russian cosmonauts but that decade I guess is where we uh, maybe where we had we were on the precipice but hadn't had as much so why do you say between 68 and 79 79 is when Star Trek came out the first Star Trek film yeah well, I I said Star Wars. Oh, Star, sorry. Star Wars is what Star Wars what issued Warp. in yeah 1977. That's what issued in the blockbuster science fiction. Picture. Right. And that's when you had a line wrapped around the block to see uh, something that was huge. You know, something that was put a lot of money into, lots of action. And I'm not saying that Star Wars dumbed down the genre, but... Um, <laughs> it was for yeah. children, so inherently it dumbed down something. Everyone gets so mad when we remind them. Star Wars was children's films. Star Wars was films. really a Western in outer space. For kids. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and it was marketed with, you know, with toys, toys in mind and, and merchandise like that. Mm-hmm. And, and that kind of opened up the door for other things to follow in its path. And when Star Wars came out and made a lot of money, Paramount Studios looked at, at what they had to offer. I said, okay, what can we do that's like Star Wars? As well, Gene Roddenberry's been trying to reboot Star Trek for the last few years yeah, as, a, as a TV series. As well, well, why not make it a feature film? And that's, that's how this happened. Well, and so we'll get into, I mean, I, I, let me put this way. I don't think a blockbuster sci-fi is ever a bad thing. I think science fiction is, in a good way, having more of a heyday now than ever. But we're going to get more into Robert Wise and uh, his life in Hollywood in just a minute. But you are listening to They Came From Outer Space here on WIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. I'm Cameron Kitt, a.k.a. DJ Lilas, here on the air. I'm here with Jeff Roll, and we are talking about the 1951 film called The Day the Earth Stood Still. And before we get back to actually Robert Wise, I think it'd be helpful for everyone listening to remind them, why is it called The Day the Earth Stood Still? Because we don't actually stop the Earth from spinning. No, I I think uh, that... An, an alien presence coming down and landing in Washington, D.C. would definitely catch the entire human race as an entirety, surprise them. You mm-hmm. know, they freeze up. And, and <laughs> yeah, I think that's what they're referring to there. Um, I always thought it was because they stopped all of the technology, right? There's like the scene where there's 30 minutes when he's in the elevator and all, and, and then it shows all across the world there's cars stopped in the streets. I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure that there's different interpretations for it. Um, but uh, like you said earlier, that uh, the original story was not called The Day the Earth Stood Still. I'm sure studio executives came up with that name. Oh, yeah, it does sound so very much yeah, like they probably came up. Yeah, they ca- probably came up with uh, a dozen names for the movie, and they, they selected that one. Mm-hmm. I haven't actually read it. The, the short story, again, uh, was called Farewell to the Master by Harry Bates. Um, and so let's talk a little bit more about Robert Wise. This was a... This was, I, don't, I actually don't know the budget, but I would assume fairly big budget film for the time, considering how much was done. 
Um, and he had worked. Let's talk about also. This is the fun stuff. I want to talk about his feud with Orson Welles. So <laughs> give me a breakdown. <laughs> um, he had worked on Citizen Kane, um, and then yeah, they had a was, big steaming feud. So what happened? He he was an editor on um, on Citizen Kane. He brought in and and was introduced to Welles uh, during the production of Citizen Kane. Um, he. St- Wells liked the work that he did, so he kept them on board to his next project, which was the Magnificent Ambersons. And uh, basically, Wells shot the film, and it was a bloated picture. It was uh, around three hours or so. And of course stu- it was. <laughs> yeah. And the, the studio didn't particularly care for the, the what Wells turned in as the finished product. So Wise, being an employee of the the production studio, RKO, was tapped to go in, edit nearly an hour of material out of it, and shoot additional f- footage and edit it in. Wow. And this was, you know, never told the well, Wells because he was overseas uh, shooting on another project. Can, that's pretty, I mean, the audacity of the studio to do that is, I mean, does that kind of thing still happen today, I assume? Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Jerks. <laughs> Yeah, it happens. It happens in in films and television. If if they're doing something that the studio doesn't like, uh, they'll send somebody in and say, "Hey, you know, you gotta change that." Yeah, you have a article. I believe the 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 title of the article is "Orson Welles hated saying Robert Wise's name in the Star Trek the Motion Picture teaser." Yeah. So that's why, because he yeah. was representative of what the studio had done to him. Correct. Um, Wells was brought in to do the voiceover for Star Trek The Motion Picture back in 79. And uh, there was a company, uh, Merv Block uh, ran it, and it was called Rosebud Studios. And he named it after Rosebud uh, because Citizen Kane was his favorite film. The best way to get on Orson Welles' side uh, get Orson Welles on your side is to flatter him. It's to suck up to him yeah. nonstop by naming your entire production studio after Rosebud. So uh, uh, Gene Roddenberry, the executive producer and the uh, creator of Star Trek, wanted a big name to do the voiceover to the teaser because this was going to be a big Christmas picture in, in, two, in 1979. So um, Block ended up hiring Welles, and Welles wasn't, wasn't aware that it was a Robert Wise directed film until he sat down in the studio at the mic and saw the text. <laughs> oh, I bet he was shivering. Well, uh, it took something like three hours for them to cut that teaser voiceover, which normally it would not take that long because Wells kept on saying Robert Wise's name with strain in his voice going in a in a new film by Robert Wise. <laughs> what a jerk, though. I mean, it's just funny to me. So that was so he couldn't get him to say his name correctly. He would purposefully mispronounce it because he was so angry at him. I think it was the what was the phrase in the article is uh, think of the person you hate the most with as much bile and disgust as you can muster, then multiply that by a thousand. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, basically, I mean, it shouldn't take three hours to do a voiceover for a two-minute teaser. Wow. And uh, that that teaser is out there on YouTube. It's fun to look at uh, because it's it's so much nostalgia for the 70s, a way they made teaser trailers back in the 70s. It's a lot of fun uh, just to see, you know, 
uh, Orson Welles do a voiceover for a Star Trek picture is, is really interesting. I mean, so as a director yourself, if something like that happened to you, do you think you would carry that much animosity towards somebody else in your other work? Or do you think you, or do you think Gosh. that's just an Orson Welles personality trait? Um, <laughs> Welles, you know, he, he did have a, an ego to carry. You don't say. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, he was brought up as, as a child prodigy. He was good at everything he did, and he excelled at theater. And uh, once he was just one of the top dog producers, directors in the theater, Hollywood wanted a piece of him. So when they brought him in to do Citizen Kane, uh, it was, you know, they gave him 100% artistic uh, direction, which is unreal at that time, uh, where the studios would come in and meddle. But uh, Citizen Kane was not metal. That was Orson Welles' real vision. But every picture after Citizen Kane was meddled with, with the studios. Hey, it's so funny to me that this is not something that's understood. It's like the films that stand the test of time are the ones where there is the artistic vision coming through, where there's risks being taken by the artist. And yet, despite seeing the monetary value that that brings, right, Citizen Kane is considered the best film ever made. Studios still decide to insert their opinions at every turn on films and ostensibly can ruin or remove some of that creativity or risk-taking that could make it better. Um, it just seems to me like bad business, but I guess I can understand why you want to protect your investment. It's all about the almighty dollar, where the money is coming from. It's coming from the studio. But today, today's film industry is, is changing and is different. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, now... Well, yeah, crowdfunding has changed that. Crowdfunding has changed. Crowdfunding is huge. And also the incredible amount of access we have to specific kinds of content now. I mean, now all the streaming channels are spending so much money making very specific pieces of content for the audiences that want to see them. I think there's a lot of opportunities now for low budget or independent filmmakers that weren't there before. It's just not the same in terms of breaking it big. It's also interesting to me to think about somebody making it big by being huge in theater, right? Yeah. That doesn't happen anymore. Great theater directors don't really. don't get handed blank checks by studios. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so let's talk a little bit. I, you know, this is a radio station. We play a lot of music. I think it's very important to talk about the score. The score, which features tremendous amounts of theremin. Theremin, um, yes. Main high, staple of 1950s science fiction. Incredible. I know. And so it's it's sort of like the sense memory that you associate with. So for those of you who aren't, who listening out there who might not know what a theremin is, Jeff, you want to give us an overview, a description? Uh, I'm not a musician. I know it uh, works off of the magnetic fields of your body, that type of a thing. Um, it is, I guess, you know, why it was con connected to science fiction so much it is a very futuristic uh, um I think it was developed in the 1920s, if I remember By correctly. By Soviet inventor Leon Theremin. Yes. 1928. And, yeah, correct. And it, it was considered kind of a, an abstract, uh, futuristic type of uh, instrument. Therefore, they, they would naturally kind of apply it to science fiction films because they're depicting future. That's true. It was, it was a yeah. new instrument, so it sounded like the future. That makes sense. Yeah. So, if you haven't, you may have seen them before. It looks a little bit like a radio with a metal bar coming out of one side and, a, and two antennas coming up off the other end. And it's controlled using the position of someone's hands, obscuring the frequencies that are being sent back and forth between those two metal rods and 
I'm gonna play some of the sound effects here <laughs> from yeah. from the from the movie that you'll definitely recognize. We have come to visit you in peace and with goodwill. And so I have quotes here about the impact of the films. The, the soundtrack, it was composed um, by Bernard Herrmann. It was the first soundtrack he'd ever done after he moved to Hollywood. Two theremins, um, two organs, three vibraphones, two glockenspiels. Um, it was uh, actually tape reversed and, and techniques were like that were used. And it was reused later um, in the original pilot episode of Lost in Space. Yeah. Did you know that? One more little bit about this, though. I love this. Is that Danny Elfman, one of the titans of scores in film, said that it inspired him in, in, immensely and uh, made him a fan. So it's funny for me to think about Danny Elfman being a fan of the theremin, but I guess it makes sense. I I think Danny Elfman has always done uh, abstract work, whether it was in rock music or pop music or in uh, in theatrical scores. Uh, he has definitely found a second career there that he is now world famous for. Um, but but I still love Oingo Boingo. Oingo Boingo, Can't which touch that. yeah, their original name was the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo, <laughs> and their first television <laughs> appearance was on the Gong Show in the 1970s. The Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo. Correct. Yes, and God they were, bless him. <laughs> yeah, and what they were doing, they were kind of doing what uh, what Devo did, and Devo. Th- thought outside of the box on how to project an image of a rock band. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Oingo Boingo did the same thing. They wore elaborate costumes and they had props that they brought on stage, that type of a thing. I think it's so important. I I think it can't be underrepresented. I see a lot of bands today that are still pulling that, like even here in Richmond, like Toxic Moxie, bands that really go hard for, for outfits, for performance. I think it makes such a big difference and in terms of the, but also, like you said, I mean, even just as a PR move, Devo was memorable because they wore consistent outfits. So they created a consistent image of themselves as opposed to just a bunch of scraggly white guys. They rebooted their look pretty much per album. They would have something different going on mm-hmm. where they wore the bright yellow jumpsuits in the late 70s and they'd come out with the energy globe hats that were bright red. And yep. then they'd come back with some other image uh, per album. Uh, that's kind of what they did. Uh, where, where Oingo Boingo kind of went the opposite way. They kind of filtered all that when they dropped the Mystic Knights off of their mm-hmm. off of their name. They kind of just became a West Coast New Wave band that everybody loved. They were a party band. They're still fun. Yeah, yeah. they are. They well, were a lot talk, of fun. Let's talk about costumes since we're here. The cost, Having just watched the movie, the costume that's most memorable is about the last scene where he's got on this very fabulous sparkly suit with kind of a... A circular collar and and puffy sleeves like what we represent as costume what what stands out to you about costuming from the film anything in particular costuming. besides gort i mean that's more design of the prop yeah design. um the the remake gort was actually about 35 feet tall instead nice. of eight feet tall and he was all cgi of course yeah um but this was actually uh, a very tall guy in an outfit. Um, he may have been on stilts. 
Um, yeah, I kept wondering. I was like, did they find someone who's like Andre the Giant size to manipulate that suit? But stilts is an interesting yeah. choice. I wonder. Um, Got to do some research on that. But as far as the uh, the wardrobe design uh, of of uh, Clateau, uh, I believe you know that was kind of traditional of uh, of science fiction back in the 50s it was okay well we know what we're gonna have to put on if we go out in outer space let's come up with some type of an alien vision of that and uh, that type of wardrobe design would probably continue for the next two decades maybe up until 2001 a space odyssey mm-hmm. is when they got more realistic on uh, on uh, wardrobe design of the not so distant future yeah yeah i mean it's 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 pretty basic it's a suit it, i think the interesting thing is it's sparkly but when you see him the first time he's got sort of like a plastic but iron maiden looking helmet on yeah that he removes that's as much as it that's as much as the alien effect as we get um but i think uh, the interesting thing is just seeing the little pieces of this that come out that have filtered down from that representation, right? This is kind of, I love the idea that it's a pacifist alien. When you see pictures of Gort, the visual from this film is it, very threatening, but the film itself is extremely strong in terms of a pacifist message. So if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend checking it out. Um, and so in closing out, Jeff, what would you say uh, is kind of one of the good lessons we can take away from this, either as film watchers or as filmmakers? What, what stands out to you as something that makes this film good? Well, I think that um, science fiction is better presented with an allegorical message, some type of philosophy behind it, Mm -hmm. um, instead of just plain entertainment. Uh, That's just the side I take on the debate. Uh, Other people would prefer the big, you know, theatrical blockbusters of just plain special effects and explosions and not no or real spectacle yeah no big spectacle yeah a big spectacle uh there's very little story there uh with major plot holes in it that type of a thing um you know it's all about uh bringing bodies into the theater and making as much money as you can on opening weekend uh i i I have seen signs in recent years that they're walking away from that brand of science fiction. I think there's a more existential science fiction going on now, specifically in independent filmmaking. Oh, yeah. And um, that's what I'm really looking forward to. I mean, uh, great where, science where fiction. Where take that, yeah. It doesn't require an incredible budget or spectacle. I think True. sci-fi, uh, we associate it, of course, with the, with the classic elements of... Uh, uh, aliens and space travel, but it could be something as simple as, as updated technology. Um, I mean, there's so much that you can do with simple, even just it, what you said, camera trickery. I think more it, it should be more about your message and what you're trying to get people to understand yeah. and less about making something that's, quote, cool. Look at a movie uh, like uh, from 15 years ago called Primer, directed by, written and directed and starring Shane Carruth. Love he, that movie. He is probably one of the best filmmakers out there right now. He takes his time on making films, but when he releases it, it really makes you think about it. It resides with you days after you've seen it. Well, and the film that everybody who's ever been to art school has seen, La Jete, it's 30 minutes and just photographs. 
correct. Yeah. Um, ju- but the but it's the voiceover that makes it such a powerful story. So, I think yeah, the best the best films uh, in science fiction are ones that generally come from having been written first as a powerful story first instead of being written from the visuals first. Right. So no offense to the Marvel <laughs> comics, yeah. but they're visuals first. And um, wow, I'm probably going to get some backlash. But <laughs> I think uh, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much, Jeff Roll. Um, it's been my pleasure. And thanks again uh, for everybody for tuning in. This has been the pilot episode of They Came From Outer Space, a show where we talk about sci-fi film and how it relates to today. Um, I'm Cameron Kitt. You can find out more about this show on WIR.org, where we have a posting. And uh, you can get in touch with me by leaving a comment. Next episode, we'll be breaking down yet another sci-fi film. And uh, thanks for tuning in. This is WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Indie Radio.